met the owner of Bear Family Records this weekend. He was visiting from Germany. Very nice man. And they do a great job of reissuing, sometimes complete discographies from artists in gorgeous packages. But I said, you know, you probably get pitched a lot of ideas. And, and he said, yeah, I don't mind when somebody has an idea. And I said, well, good, I have an idea I'm going to throw at you. But I have no skin in this game, so you know, take it for what it is. In the 60s and 70s, Memphis wrestling was huge. They would sell out the Memphis Coliseum every Monday night, you know, 10,000 people. And they would sell a lot of different kinds of merch to people. One of the things that they would sell would be 45s of the wrestlers singing, people like Jackie Fargo and handsome Jimmy Valiant singing. And the musicians who played on these records were studio musicians. There were session players in Memphis. There were the same people playing on Elvis records, Al Green, Dusty in Memphis. I thought it would be a great idea to reissue all of this stuff. I thought it would be an interesting box set of some sort. You know, he seemed impressed. He laughed a little bit and he said, that's, you know, I've been pitched a lot of ideas, but that's one of the more original ones I've ever heard. And I think he was just being nice to me and I don't expect this to ever pop up. But just in case you walk into your local record store one day and you see this box set sitting on the shelves, I just want everyone to remember that you heard it here first. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Joe Bussard. Joe is a collector of vintage 78 RPM records, and he lives in Frederick, Maryland. You can find out everything you need to know about Joe at joesvintage78.com. Joe's record collection is generally thought of as the best record collection in the world. There are people who own more records, but no one has a higher quality collection than Joe. And there's a documentary called Desperate Man Blues that you can see on YouTube. I highly recommend it. It's beautiful. You get to see Joe interacting with these records, and you can tell how just passionate he is when he's listening to the music. It's just a beautiful thing. Everyone should have something in their life that they're as passionate about as Joe is about records. I met up with Joe in Knoxville, Tennessee, in a hotel room, And Joe was nice enough to tell me a few stories about his collecting over the years. And I I enjoyed his company very much. Just really, really enjoyed being around him. And I loved hearing his stories. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. There's Joe Lassard. Let me see. I had a big troll when I was five years old. I still got it. It was my father's. And neighbors would bring records by. And I was fascinated by records. Later on, when I got into my <clears throat> 12 years old or so, I heard, I like Gene Autry. So I 
went around, looked for Gene Autry records, and uh, then one time I heard Jimmy Rogers. That's, that did it. And I went to the record store. It was 1948. Anything you got by Jimmy Rogers, and they went through the book. Never heard of him. See, but by that time, Victor had pulled all that stuff off. I think it was 45. They pulled all the last records like that. They were on Bluebird and Carter Family, all repressed. So I heard where he had uh, sold so many records, so I started going out and asking. And there was a woman sitting on the stoop <laughs> the street, and I asked her, she said, yeah, i got some, and she bought a box out. Must have been 50 records in it. Says, let's take them. And there was two Jimmy Rogers in there, but with some other stuff. Things I like. Hey, I like this too. I don't like this guy. You know, this and that and this and that. But the the real thing came when I got my driver's license when I was 16. Then I went all over the place. <clears throat> That's when I ventured down into Virginia and found Carter family. And I loved them. You know, I didn't know a thing about records. I mean, who, how many were made and who or what, you know, and all that I had to learn as I went. But uh, I went every day I could. So you were going to people's houses? Door to door. Just randomly. Well, I could look at the house and say, that's, you know, I don't want to go to a new house. You want one that's old looking in there. <clears throat> and the, the, I bought them off the people that bought them because they were in their 60s then, you know, maybe 70. So they had them and they kept them. I went up to this door one time and I knocked on the door. And I looked through the screen door and I said a big wind up in the hallway. I said, oh, boy, I got to turn on the charm. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, people sold them. They didn't. Yeah, they, nobody wanted them, really. I mean, they weren't worth anything then. And um, I went all over the place, met people everywhere. So I went out on the weekend, come home with 500 records, a couple of dollars a stack, sometimes 50 cents a piece, a quarter a piece. Oh, yeah, I built this station, uh, ran... Just out of your house? Yeah. I had a very studio. We had a, three turntables and a board and... Wire recorder, there was no tape then worth, you know, getting tape recorders weren't very good, at least unless you spent a lot of money. And we put our commercials on wire and charged a dollar a spot. And we had the uh, Linden Hill Food Market Store, Fred Kemp's Filling Station, Blue Lights Cabs, and a couple other places. <laughs> the, the, the Linden Hill Food Market, they took 10 spots a day. And we take it out and trade. <laughs> Potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> Cokes. <laughs> oh, Lord. I mean, I was 12 and up to, I think I was 17. And you were playing your old 78s? So yeah. It was, it was up and up. There was no carrying on, no BSing or anything like that on there. You know, no cussing or anything like that. It was strictly up and down. I told my cousin, DJ, he was pretty good. And we didn't stay on. You know, we went off early in the evening. You know, weekends were on. And I remember when Hank Williams died, we played Hank Williams record the whole day. And people would call, call in, you know. And we had a party line. And we had to stop him because he'd pick up the phone. I want to hear a record. And the other two neighbors on the party line were raising cane. <laughs> <laughs> people used to bring records by. You want these to play on the radio? <laughs> people used to come out and sit and watch. <laughs> that thing, it was an FCC oscillator. Weighed 500 pounds. Had a 10,000 volt power supply in the bottom, and up in the top, it had a final output tube that big around three feet or two feet. It had a tank circuit cool to each glow the antenna with all kind of stuff. A ton, it weighed a ton. And Groby kept running the power capacitor up. You 
know, the meters would go up. And it hit a certain spot where it dimmed the street lights. <laughs> Out in the street. And Groovy's daddy had just bought one of these big Philco TVs, a Grimund's thing with a five inch screen. <laughs> and it sucked it down to a postage stamp. He come out there, he raised a holy age. Oh my God. So one day I went down to the Linden Hill food market store to get some junk stuff to eat, you know, potato chips. I had a big old Zenith radio in the basket of the bus, uh, my bike. And I got down where the trailer court was. You could hear it coming out of every trailer, you know, just echoing all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> and I went in the store and he had it on in there, of course. And then I heard all this dead air. Then I heard a record, and I said, what in the heck is Eddie doing? You know, and then dead air again, then another record startup. And then it straightened out. So I went back up the road and across the road was an old, looked like a 51 Dodge pickup truck that had been rolled over. The darnest looking thing. I said, who in the devil does that piece of junk belong to? And of course, I found out it was the FCC. <laughs> and my dad met me at the garage door. The garage was under the house. Oh, you done it now. <laughs> I said, what's going on? He said, the FCC's in here. There's two of them. <laughs> and then bad enough is one, and that'd be two. So I walked back there, and, and they said, the federal committee, he showed me a badge, you know. says, uh, you know what you fellows are doing here, and you got to have a license. I said, Really? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I didn't know that. He said, we've been listening to you for months. <laughs> they like the music. Oh, let me see. I went, well, the one time I went on this hunt, I, I hit a bunch of houses and found some nice records, and they kept telling me about this old lady that had records. But the way they described it, it was like 25 miles away on... 10 back roads. So I really didn't play all that much attention, you know, and uh, I, I made, I went on all kinds of roads here and there and here and there. And I came down the road and there was this old house set on the right side of the road, if I remember, and it looked good. I, it looked like if you raised the wind up, records would slide out. And there was an old man on the porch and uh, I asked him, no, we never had none of them talking machines, but you see that mailbox down there? And I said, yeah. He said, that old lady's got all kind of records back there. So <clears throat> I went and it was a foot uh, um, path. You had to walk back. <clears throat> you couldn't, you know, you couldn't drive back. It was about a mile. And I went over a foot log, <clears throat> over a creek, up over a hill, and there was a house. Old stone house, and smoke coming out of the chimney. This was in the summertime. And I went and knocked on the door. Is this 1950s? Yeah, early 60s, probably. Come on in. Well, in that situation, you got to let them know that you're a stranger. You know, you're a strange person. You know, if it's a local person, they just walk right in. But I didn't do that. I, I, I let them know who, that I wasn't around that locally, you know. And she had a big wind-up stuff full and three or four boxes. And I picked out 300 records. And we worked out a deal, and I got them reasonable. I didn't know at the time the rarest Carter family record ever made was in there. I picked it out. Which record is that? Bear Creek Blues, Conquer, sold for one day uh, from certain Sears store. I don't think they only had a few copies. I don't know how that came about. The other side came out on two other labels. It was just the Bear Creek Blues side. 
It was cut in Chicago in 1940. They, they had a big session. In fact, they really great. Whoever ran that session knew what they were doing as far as sound quality. So I had to drag them. <laughs> I got to the foot log. I took my pants off, my shoes, and put the records on the foot log and drum, slide them across real slow because if they'd have fell in there, they'd been gone. And when I got back on the other side, then I redressed and uh, drug them for a mile till I got down where I could see the car, and then I got smaller boxes and walked back up. I didn't find out about the Carter family record until later on. I had a guy in Chicago didn't believe it existed, and he came all the way down to take a look at it. Pretty rare. Um, been uh, how many years? Fifty-seven years or more since I found it. Never seen another one. The mythology <clears throat> that I hear, or the folklore that I hear, is that you have the only complete set of Carter family records in existence. I believe there might be one other set. Uh, I'm not sure. I know one fellow that has them all but the Conqueror. That's the big one. And it just happened that, happened that they had a few copies. I don't know, it was 100 or less. And so one day... Nashville died. I was in Nashville in 57, uh, me and Jim. He wanted to go to Opry. We, kept, we were down in Florida, and I got a sunburn you wouldn't believe. I couldn't touch anything for a week. So we came back up. I want to go to Opry. I said, you're going to be disappointed. I said, no, I used to go. This is 57. I said, well, I want to go. All right. So we went. It was a Friday night. It was awful. Some guy down on the stage beating that burp, out of a snare drum. I said, that's it. I'm going to get my money back. And Jim said, I'm getting mine back. So we went up front. My mother back. Why? What's wrong? I said, What's wrong? I come down here to country music. Let some idiot beat the drum. <coughs> <laughs> so, see, after 55, everything went to burp. Did you at least, were there any names on the Opry that night? Was oh, Roy Acuff or Bill Monroe? No, 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 no. Roy Acuff lived on the Opry at the Opry to keep it traditional. He did everything he could until he died, and it was the end of it. Anyway, we went down the stairs, and I ran into Sam McGee, one of the best country guitar players ever lived. And we ended up back at the Opry house in his old Chevrolet car for four hours, him telling stories, and I didn't have a tape recorder. He said they had a banjo contest where the performer performed behind a curtain so nobody could tell who it was. And he won. He beat out Dave Macon. And Dave was, (laughs) Macon was really teed off. (laughs) So Sam played a six-string banjo guitar. Oh, he made one record that went, what was that one? Uh, Chevrolet car, an easy rider. Phew, what a record. Vocalion issued in 28. I found three copies in the store, brand new. I wish they had the other two <laughs> now. <laughs> but he was a he was unbelievable. He said, Dave making word him to death to go to New York. He said, Sam, come on, go to New York. He said, they'll love you up there. They'll, they'll make a record of you. And he said, I really didn't want to go. He said, finally, he talked me into it. And he said, we drove from Nashville to Knoxville. Took three days. He said, every crick we came to, you had to put water in that damned old Model T. <laughs> and they didn't know bridges. You had to drive through the rivers in those days. And they went up there, and uh, he recorded Knoxville Blues, which I have a beautiful copy of. Buck Dancer's Choice and Franklin Blues. That's a hard one to find. And <clears throat> he, I had this record of Knoxville Blues that I found near Front Royal, Virginia. It had this terrible feedback. 
when Uncle Dave was on there talking. He said, oh, folks, this is Sam McGee from Tennessee. Just to get right. Let's go, Sam. And he picked the guitar, and Uncle Dave would, you know, like this. And yeah, I was born to die, you know. And it had this terrible feedback. So I found another copy that didn't have it. So I asked Sam about that. He said, yeah. He said, they had problems. He said, we had to do it over. Somehow or another, the stamper got mixed in, and they pressed a few copies before they found out about it. I, I've never found another copy with the feedback in it. Now, the other, the other one, I, I, a fellow in Ashland, Kentucky, found it like an E-plus copy in the Big Troll. I still got that. And I was um, to find that record in that condition. He was an unbelievable guitar player. Played open D. Three-finger fouling. Best records were made were Columbia, anything, because they were laminated. They had this, it looked like pancakes. And they had a mixture of tar and stuff. They put uh, they put one pancake or label down, facing up, you know, out. Then they put one of the tar. Then they, in the middle was a block of this, like, tar or whatever mixture. Then they put another pancake over on top and then stick the label on that and put it in that thing, you know, and stick it in 70 tons. And that was your record. It had a good surface. Anything Columbia pressed, if you had a test pressing on vinyl, Right off the same stamper. It wouldn't be any better than the record pressed. I've heard people much smarter than me saying that that was the best quality records that were ever made. I mean, what they were doing was fantastic. You don't hear through my speaker system at home. Western Electric, of course, had it. They invented it uh, in 1920. But none of the companies wanted to touch it because it was too expensive. So they went on with the horn. Acoustical, mechanical. There was a guy in Chicago that made a label called Autograph, extremely rare. In 1925, he was, he was recording electrically. You could tell it. He was ahead of everybody. And then in 1925, when radio was ready, inroading in Columbia and Victor, that Bucks finally got it, and that revolutionized records. But I think if he had to pick the surface, Paramounts were, <laughs> oh, oh. Paramount Furniture Company, they scraped the sawdust off, off, off the floor, mixed it with molasses and tar, pressed Paramounts. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the best stuff in the world was on that. I, I mean, I got some Paramounts that played beautiful, and then some that looked good, but terrible. Well, so you have a large collection, but it's a very, very high quality. Yeah, I, I slimmed it down. I'm down to 15000 I sold a few things. I'm not getting any younger, and uh, may as well, you know, a guy options big money for a record. I've sold some. Most of it's early country. Well, Ike Robertson, Sally Gooden, 1922. Country music was over in 55. After that was bluegrass. Uh, also collect um, swing, early swing, but uh, black gospel, black lady singers, black blues, uh, Cajun. You know, all kinds of stuff. See, the trouble with me when I when I collected, I collected all of it. Most of the time, a guy that collected jazz, you know, he'd pick up some good country stuff. Oh, I'll trade you for a jazz record. I didn't, couldn't do that because I, I wanted to keep everything. I liked all of it. <laughs> oh, I got a lot. I, I cameraed uh, Johnson City, Tennessee years ago for the Richitone Records. They were only sold down there. And you would just go door to door to people's houses. We went to radio stations and they were dumping all that stuff. Oh, yeah, I went to house to house. Oh, yeah, that's fun. I want to be sure that people know that when you were doing this, 
most people didn't want the stuff. No, there was there might have been a few other guys out doing it too. You know, I went to one house. <clears throat> lady came out and was talking. She said, "Well, there were two men here a month ago looking for records. I didn't like them. <laughs> she liked me." <laughs> And they're the ones that's got the good stuff because she had all kind of Montgomery Wards, Blue Sky Boys, and Decent Shape. They're my favorites. That's, good. that's great Sky stuff. Boys. Oh, yeah. They, they were beautiful. 14 and 17 years old when they recorded the 1936. But it's all kind of stuff like that. And I got a lot of jazz. Jazz was over in 33. After that, forget it. Oh, by the way... Um, all records up until late 28 were 76 RPM. All played, everybody plays them too fast. We wonder why Sarah Carter's voice sounded so high on those Victor Bristol sessions. <clears throat> so we started slowing them down. We got them down to 76 and it was normal. And in fact, I had a guy came in with a bass saxophone. You ever see one of those things? Yeah. And he could play it. I put on some Frankie Trimbrow. I think that's the way you pronounce it. It had bass sax on that. And he says, something wrong. He says, the sax is out of tune. He says, Joe, he says, saxes don't go out of tune. So I started slowing down. We got down to 76. He said, that's it. That's that's where it was recorded at. So all, all the stuff I play on the radio, I play at 76. That's a normal speed. I think by 29 or 30, they went to 78. I, I said I went out. Every time I had any money, I, I went out. I mean, when I first started, gas was 16, 17 cents a gallon. You took 50 bucks, you could stay out a week. Um, you could get a nice lunch, hot beef sandwich, mashed potatoes, and a Coke for 50 cents. I spent more money on eats than I did records. Yeah. You got to see the real America. Yeah, I got in some for weird places, man. <laughs> All kind of stuff. It, um, Bluefield, Virginia was a good place. The blacks and the whites had jobs, railroad and coal mining. So they bought records. And there was a Bluefield Music Company handled all the labels. I used to find them, you know, Bluefield Music Company, open evenings. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I've, below there is where I found the Black Patties. Uh, the one is the only known copy. Did you know what it was when you found it? No. I, I, I went out looking for this flea market. And I made a long turn. <laughs> That's the best long turn I ever made. And I got down the road about a mile, and there's this fellow walking up the other side of the road. And I stopped. I said, where's the flea market? He's up there. I said, you going up there? And he said, yeah. I said, hop in. You know, I always had somebody with me when I went on trips. Somebody watched a car when I was in the house. You know. And we had a tape player going. He said, oh, you getting that on the radio? I said, no. He said, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> he knew better than nothing I got on the radio. And I told him we was looking for old records. And he said, I got a bunch of them back at the house. So we went to the flea market. It was nothing. So we went back to his house and about 20 miles. He lived up the back of an old trailer court. You ought to see that place. I would have never found that road. Anyway, he had to live in a shotgun shack. You know what that is, don't you? <clears throat> and we walked halfway through and went a right turn in the bedroom. And he pulled this box out from under the bed. It must have had three feet of bed dirt and dust. Looked like snowing, <laughs> like a blizzard. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and there was uh, Uncle Dave making a bouquet pretty worn, a Carter family, a few other Charlie Poole, and then I hit the first black patty. I was oh, my Lord. <laughs> I said, geez. I laid it aside. Got picked out two, three other records, and there was 
two black patties. Numbers three, numbers four. Oh, my God. I got 15 out there. He said, you kind of like them, don't you? I said, yeah, they're really w w weird. I said, where'd you get those? He said, some man gave them to our da my daughter, or my sister, in 1920. said, we didn't like them. So they shoved them in a the box and shoved them under the bed, waiting for me to come along 80 years later and get them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I got back home, and I called Mike Stewart. He was a good friend of mine, excellent guitar player. He passed away a couple years ago. And he was dealing in records, had auctions. I said, Mike, I hit it this time, 15 black patties. Oh, give, don't give me any of that. Boop. <laughs> <laughs> he said, what are they? And I started reading them off, and I got to the Long Cleave Reed, Papa Harvey Hall, and I didn't hear anything. Mike, you still there? He says, I'll call you back. About 10 minutes later, phone rang. Hi, Joe, this is Bernie Klatsko in New York. He said, I heard about your terrific find. He says, you're going to be home tomorrow. I want to come down. i got to hear this record. I said, yeah. So he came down. And he like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know? <laughs> he said, here's $10,000. You sell it for that? I said, no. So he, he said, well, take 800 of it and put it on tape. I want to put it out on my LP. So I, I taped it for him. And the next day, uh, Don Kent called. I heard you about your Beautiful fine. I said, yeah, Bernie's been down there. What do you, what do you offer you? <laughs> I said, 10 grand. He said, I'll bubble it. I said, no, I don't want to sell it. I said, Bernie gave me $800, $400 aside to put it on LP. He said, I'll give you $800. I said, I'll wait and put it out later. So they did. And then other people got to hear it. And now it's way up and way up. Well, the Black Patties, there were like three or four really great ones. Jeanette Records pressed him for Mayo Williams. He wanted him named after Black Patty, which was a black opera singer. I got a beautiful picture of her at home. And when she performed, she wore peacock feathers. So the label, which Fred Jeanette pressed, Jeanette Pre Records pressed in Indiana, had the top of the label. You ever seen one? Yeah. You know, the top was a whole peacock with its feathers spread out. Yeah. Beautiful, unbelievable label. They had real artists. It's one of the prettiest labels. And there were 55 different ones, and a lot of them came out on Jeanette and Champion as well. They're still rare on Black Patty, but the one I have is only on Black Patty. Um, Rizmo Stackley Blues, about E minus. They never played them. That was a find of a lifetime. It's like finding the rarest thing you collect. And it's the only one. Pete Whelan, he had a big collection, but he put this magazine out. He said that he checked with every collector he knew. Nobody's ever seen that record. In any condition. And he believes that it is the only copy. Now, one may turn up. You never know. It's been 50 years since I found this one. So that's my baby. Did you, did you see the movie? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, you oh, see yeah. me home. I'm going to take it with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I like that. <clears throat> but it's a fantastic hobby. I mean, to me, it's the best time. You can, the, the label's a work of art, and you can look at them, and you can see them spinning around, but you can drop that needle down and hear all that good music. Uh, we could go on all day. We could go on all day. <laughs> I really appreciate you hey, sharing stories no with me. No problem at all. It's, it's fun. <laughs> Thank you.
I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Joe for meeting up with me at that hotel room in Knoxville. You can find out everything you need to know about Joe at joesvintage78.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, leave a comment. Subscribe and you'll get a brand new episode as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.